0: do it. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 and uh, Happy Mother's Day, as Jim said, um, for sure, one of, if not the most important callings uh, that's out there. And for you moms, um, as society really attacks motherhood more and more and more, um, remember there's great rewards in heaven for uh, a lot of times the thankless job and task and calling of motherhood. Um, I, just to say this, because I know uh, as a parent in general, sometimes it just always feels like you're failing. <laughs> uh, let me just say this as uh, to you moms. The job is not to be perfect. The calling is not to be perfect. We, we're never going to be perfect. The calling is to be faithful. And uh, even if you have grown-up kids that have walked away from the Lord that, Maybe you're not in contact with. uh, You can faithfully be praying for them. And um, I really believe the prayers of a mother are extremely powerful. So uh, with that said, we're going to be in Exodus this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. If you would, read along with me. Starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out the house of slavery. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, God, I pray that, Lord, you're with us this morning as we start looking at this important passage the ten commandments where you spoke and i know lord you have spoken in all of scripture lord every single word uh has been inspired by you therefore your words but in this passage we learn about that man actually heard your voice audibly which is amazing thought god uh be with us this morning as we Start to tackle the law as we start to tackle the Ten Commandments, the foundation to the law. God, I pray that we just get a fuller and better understanding of who you are and really what Exodus is doing, what it means to that you are Yahweh, Lord, that you are revealing your name and your character through this book, Lord. So be with us this morning as we look at this important passage and really these two important verses, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. We've been in Exodus 19 for a couple of weeks now, and of course we have seen, and I knew this was coming in Exodus 19, we've seen Yahweh, this amazing, awesome God, put on display His holiness, His glory, really put on display His transcendent nature. In Exodus 19, after making a covenant through Moses with Israel, God descended On Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. And he's going to give Israel the law. The law that governs this covenant that they just entered into with this amazing God, the law. And in particular, in in our passage in this chapter, chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, which are foundational to the law. And he's going to speak these Ten Commandments By his own thunderous voice. Exodus 19. Again and 20. Really puts on display. God's transcendent nature. Which this is on purpose. God is revealing who he is to the Israelites. Let me just give you the definition. Of the transcendency of God. The transcendence of God means. That there is a distance. Between God and his creatures. Because of his holy and greatness. His holiness and greatness. To transcend means to go beyond. God's transcendence is his otherness, his separateness from everything that he has made. When people see God as transcendent, they approach him with wonder and awe and even fear. God transcends his creation, and we have seen this the last couple weeks. He is far above, he's beyond, he's separate from. But here's the amazing thing about this doctrine, the transcendence of God it seems to always go with another doctrine that in some ways seem like it's exact opposite. God's imminence. Let me give you a definition of God's imminence. The doctrine of God's imminence refers to his nearness and relatedness to his creation, his creatures. Imminent means, or comes from the Latin word meaning to remain in. To speak of God's imminence, therefore, is to speak of his close personal involvement and interaction with his creation. When people see God as imminent, they approach him with confidence, expecting to experience the intimacy of his personal presence. Now, these doctrines, when you look at them, seem to be opposite. God's transcendence means his otherness, and God's imminence means his nearness. In fact, throughout church history, you can just do a study of church history, and you, you will see Christians often over-emphasizing one of these doctrines to the neglect or destruction even of another. Some generations have emphasized God's transcendent nature, his otherness, to the neglect of his imminence, his closeness. Some generations, which... I would claim as ours, have overemphasized God's imminence, his nearness, his love, patience, and kindness, his mercy and grace to the neglect of his transcendence. But scripture finds just a perfect balance between these two doctrines. And it's beautiful, it really is. In fact, it's only when you understand God's transcendence that God's love and grace, that God's nearness becomes so meaningful. Otherwise, God's love is just cheap love. Well, of course he loves me. Listen, it's only when, when God's imminence, his closeness, is seen through the lens of God's transcendence, his holiness, his otherness, do we start to comprehend what it actually means to have a relationship with this God. Why both these doctrines are so important. In Exodus chapter nineteen and twenty, I think we all would probably agree that we clearly see God's transcendent nature. But here's the amazing thing, because a lot of people go back to this chapter, Exodus chapter nineteen, and just complete fear. In fact, there's very few churches that I think preach through the book of Exodus Anyways but get to a chapter Like chapter 19 and preach through Chapter 19 because it's just Not something we're comfortable with In our culture We see God's transcendence But here's the amazing thing We also see God's imminence In these chapters We see God's kindness And mercy we see his nearness We see his patience and even his fatherly Love So today I have Three points of the sermon this morning. Three ways we see God's eminence at Mount Sinai. Here are the three points. The first one is this. Again, God's revealing his name. So Yahweh. Yahweh is a God who descended. That's the first point. Second point, Yahweh is a God who spoke, who speaks. And third, Yahweh is a God who saves. So let's start with Yahweh is a God who descended right? We're going to spend a little bit of time here and not a lot because we've already talked about this and I think it's just somewhat obvious right? God descended on Mount Sinai and this descendants is evidence of his eminence it's evidence of his grace and mercy, it's evidence of his love, it's really evidence of his desire to have a relationship with man, particularly Israel Ever since Genesis 3, if you go through the meta narrative of Scripture, in fact, just the meta narrative of the Pentateuch, ever since Genesis 3, there's been this separation between God and man. If you think about it for a second. Before Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, God walked with man. Man walked with God and talked with God. Man enjoyed God's presence. Then after man sinned, Adam and Eve hid from God because they were afraid, they were terrified of this holy God. From Genesis 3 on, because of sin, there has been a separation between God and man because, as we've said the last few weeks, God is holy and man is sinful. But in Exodus 19, we can't miss this. We start to see a reversal of, of the effects of Genesis 3. And this is no small thing. It's meant to be followed through in the story of the Pentateuch. Look at verse 11. Go back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 11. It says this, Be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. God's going to come down. He's going to come close, in other words, to the people. And this is exactly what happened again. Verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud, a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended. On it in fire. Now, we have seen in the last two weeks that there is a separation. There's still a separation between a holy God and a sinful people. That's why there needed to be boundaries around the mountain. That's why God veiled himself in smoke. And the separation really doesn't get resolved till the New Testament, where we can enter the holy places with confidence. There's still a separation, but. God came down to his people. God drew near. And what did God do when he drew near to Israel on the mountain? Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke. So this brings me to my second point this morning. We'll spend a little bit more time on this point. Yahweh is a God speaks Yahweh is a God who speaks again, Exodus 20 verse 1 and God spoke this is amazing three words (laughs) Yahweh is a God who speaks after descending on the mountain, out of the cloud out of the fire God spoke Yahweh is a God who speaks Again, God is transcendent, right? We see this clearly in chapter 19. He's terrifying. As I said last week, he's even dangerous. That's why there needed to be boundaries around the mountain. But out of his love, out of his mercy, out of his grace, out of his goodness, he came down, he descended, and he spoke. God spoke. Listen to what Albert muller Writes about this passage in his book, Words from the Fire. You can guess what that book's about. Words from the Fire, he says this we have no right to hear God speak. We have no call upon his voice. We have no right to demand that that he would speak. We are accustomed to pointing to the cross of Christ and saying at the cross, that is mercy. Right, there is mercy but at Mount Sinai there was mercy too there there is mercy when god speaks if you would turn to psalm 19 19 because i want to look at this question and, and kind of answer a question why is it mercy right why is god speaking merciful Why would Albert Moeller say, that is mercy? And we know that the cross of Christ is the ultimate display of God's mercy. But I think Al Moeller is exactly right, that God's spoken word, him speaking, is mercy too. I think Psalm 19 tells us how and why it's mercy. Again, Psalm 19, let's look at verse 1 very familiar psalm, I think, to most of us. It says this, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. This is talking about creation. It's talking about the sky, the sky during the day, and then it's going to talk about the stars at night. In other words, the beauty of the heavens, the beauty of creation declares the glory of God. It declares, in fact, verse 2 says, Day to day Pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. You just walk outside and look around and it reveals knowledge about God. It pours out speech. It declares, it proclaims. Theologians call this general revelation. General because it, it it's for everyone. Everyone could see creation and experience creation. So everyone can see God's glory through creation, and everyone does. Revelation, because it reveals truths about God. The creation itself, right, nature itself reveals truth. The heavens, the stars, the sun, it all reveals truth about God. It declares the glory of God. It pours out speech. It reveals, there's that word, revelation. It reveals knowledge about God creation declares or reveals that there is a God and he is glorious. Again, verse 2, day to day, general revelation, creation, day to day, it pours out speech and night to night it reveals knowledge about God. But look at verse 3. There is no speech. Nor are there words whose voice is not heard. I mean, what do you mean there's no speech? What do you mean no voice? Look at, look at verse four. Their voice, this is talking about the heaven's creations. Listen to what it says. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is meant to be poetic. The author is telling us in verse two that creation pours out speech. And then verse three, it says there is no speech. And then verse 4, it says, There is speech. It speaks. The voice goes out through all the earth. their are words to the ends of the world. Everyone can hear it, in fact. In them, it keeps going, In them, he has set a tent for the sun. Now, the focus on general revelation and creation here becomes the sun. He's just taking one example of the glory of God seen through creation. Think of the sun. In them... He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out in the morning. It comes out, in other words, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heaven and its circuit to the ends of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. In fact, as we're finding out this time of year, if you stay outside too long, it will burn you. The point of this is for how amazing the sun is, God made it. God controls it. He spoke it into existence, He makes sure it runs its course. Creation declares, it screams, God is glorious. But there's still verse 3. Again, look at verse 3. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So what is verse 3 saying? Well, it's saying this. Creation speaks, but it speaks without words. It speaks without words. Think about it. The sun doesn't say words. It declares the glory of God, but it speaks without words. Therefore, it's limited general revelation is limited. It speaks without words, therefore it's not clear. We can only learn so much through just looking at creation. Just think about all the different tribes throughout human histories that have their best guesses of what God is like by interpreting creation. They're all wrong. General general revelation is great. It's even God's grace that He declares his glory and greatness and and truth about himself throughout creation. But it's not enough. Therefore, we need something else. Something that can make sense of creation, nature, general revelation. Something that can make sense of this world. Something that can make sense of math, history, art, science, astrology, the, the heavens, biology, Something that can make sense of suffering, sin, life, war, evil, good. Something clearer. Something with words. We need words. We need special revelation. We need God to speak with words clearly. Exodus 20, verse 1. What does it say? And God spoke. What did he speak? And God spoke all these words. He spoke words. Right? And he spoke clearly. We can read them. And what's the context of Exodus 20? we've talked about this. What is Exodus 20? It's the Ten Commandments, right? The context of Exodus 20, these 20 through chapter 40 of Exodus is all going to be the law of God, God giving the law. The context of chapter 20 is the law. God spoke the law. He spoke the Ten Commandments, which is the foundation to all the laws in the Old Testament. Well, look at Psalm 19, verse 7. For how great general revelation is, verse 7 the law of the lord is perfect it's perfect reviving the soul the testimonies of the law of the lord is is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Verse 10, more to be desired are they. This is God's words, right? God's word, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of a honeycomb. This author understands the value of God's word, that God spoke. The God that created gold and honey by speaking it into existence, spoke words to us. And this author gets how valuable that is. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is their great reward. Now, here's a major shift that happens that we don't see in English in this psalm. In verses 1 through 6, the author is talking about general revelation. He's talking about creation. The heavens declare, the sky proclaims, creation speaks, it declares. In verses 7 through 11, what we just read, the author is talking about special revelation. Right? God's words. Right? God's law, his revelation with words, him speaking. Right? Scripture god himself right the heavens declare god's glory but in special revelation in in the word god himself declares <laughs> clearly with words Well, look at verse one the heavens declare the glory of god now in hebrew the word for god there is El. it's a generic name for god in other words it's just god it's the name that pagans use for their gods it's the name the Hebrews would use to talk about false gods. It's just a generic name meaning God. right? Verse 1. Well now look at verse 7. The law of the Lord. It's capital L-O-R-D. That's God's covenantal name. God's personal name. Yahweh. The name revealed to Moses in Exodus by what? God's words. It's a name that shows intimacy between Yahweh and his people, Israel. And the author's making a point here. He's, look how many times he uses God's name. Verse 7, the laws of the Lord, of Yahweh. Right, The testimony of Yahweh. Verse 8, the precepts of Yahweh, the commandment of Yahweh. Verse 9, the fear of Yahweh, the rules of Yahweh. Listen, it's God's word, his special revelation, it's scripture, it's the law that brings an intimacy, a closeness with God. That we would never have had if God didn't reveal himself to us. If God didn't descend and come to us and speak. Special revelation, think about this. It's God's intimate thoughts shared with us. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so to instruct him? I would just think that question should stop right there, but it doesn't. It says this, But we have the mind of Christ. You know what that is? H Henry says this, he describes special revelation by speaking of it as God's willful disclosure, whereby he forfeits his own personal privacy that his creatures might know him. Now turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 Verse 1 says this And God Spoke All these words saying Verse 2 this is what he says I am The Lord Your God Now We pointed this out last week What is this It's a burning bush I am It's the name revealed, right? Yahweh, I am the Lord Again, capital L-O-R-D That's Yahweh It's the name revealed to Moses in Exodus 3 Remember in Exodus 3, God comes and reveals himself And Moses says, well, what should I tell the people your name is? And he says, I am who I am, right? I, I'm about to show you who I am and, and since then, chapter 3 on We've been seeing a revelation of who God is We get to chapter 20, and God himself is speaking so that everyone, the Israelites, could hear his voice. Listen, this was the burning bush on a much grander scale. Instead of a bush burning, a whole mountain was on fire. (laughs) Instead of man, one man taking off his shoes because it's holy ground and he's not holy a whole people, over a million people, had to be consecrated, be washed and made holy. Instead of God talking to one man, all of Israel is hearing God's voice from the fire on the mountain. Exodus 19 and 20 was the burning bush on a much larger scale. And what was God doing at the burning bush? Again, he was revealing his name to Moses. Well, look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. God is revealing his name still by his own voice. And he reveals it in Ten Commandments. This is a further revelation. I think we get so fixed on chapter 3 and get all these philosophical ideas of what I am means that we forget that he is revealing his name throughout all of Exodus and we get to Exodus chapter 20 and he says I am Yahweh and gives us further revelation of who he is in 10 commandments very clear with words the law of God is so important the law of God reflects the character of God be holy why because I am holy the law of God reflects the character of God. The Ten Commandments is the likeness of God. Listen to this. I took this from a theologian. It's likeness of God expressed in precepts and commands. That's what the Ten Commandments are. It's the revelation of God's character. This is who I am in ten words. Ten commands. How does it start? I think we just ignore some of these things. Again, let me read it. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Ten Commandments start by God's grace. It starts by reminding Israel that God is a God who saves and that they were saved from slavery. This brings me to my third and final point this morning. The God who saves. The God who saves. Look at verse 2 again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Think about this. God starts the Ten Commandments. God, God starts the law. This is him starting at Mount Sinai, giving the law. It starts in chapter 20. It goes all the way through Leviticus, all the way through Numbers, chapters 10, all out Mount Sinai. The very first words that come out of God's mouth when he gives the law is Grace. reminding Israel of their salvation in fact Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 is a summary of Exodus chapter 1 through 19 I am the Lord your God that's a burning bush we already talked about that just in the mercy that God would reveal his name Right, there's grace just in that. I am the Lord. This is my personal name, Moses. Now he's telling all of Israel. This is my personal name, Yahweh. And let me reveal what that means. And what did he reveal in chapters 1 through 19? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the redemption of Israel. That's chapters 1 through 19. We think about what we've learned about God in Exodus chapters 1 through 19 so far. God, first of all, heard Israel's cry for salvation. God comes and saves Israel by raising up a deliverer, Moses. God redeems Israel by buying them out of the house of slavery. And through it all, in chapters 1 through 19, God is extremely patient with Israel. In fact, he's extremely patient with Moses. There's like three chapters where all that's happening is Moses arguing with this terrifying God. (laughs) And he's patient with him. God is slow to anger. In fact, again, God is revealing his name, what it means that he's Yahweh. And in the definition of his name, as we will see eventually here, is slow to anger. God is even fatherly. Like a father that loves his son and is patiently working with him. We see this with his interaction with Moses, but it's even true with Israel. In fact, in Exodus 4.22, he says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that I'm, that he may serve In Exodus 1 through 19 God is gracious with Israel. And what's extremely important to understand is Israel did nothing. They did nothing to earn this grace. They did nothing to save themselves. They did nothing to create themselves. You can go back to Genesis chapter 12, what did Abraham do? He was a pagan worshiper. And God said, you, I'm making a great nation out of you, go. Why? Because God's gracious. It was grace first, in other words, then the law. Grace first, then the law. And this is extremely important. This is what the the Pharisees missed. This is what legalists miss. In Exodus, it was grace first and then the law. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be back in Exodus, but I just noticed something as I was studying this that I think will be important for us to get our mind wrapped around. We spent so much time in the book of Ephesians, so I want to make a connection here. Now that a lot of us that have went through those two years in the book of Ephesians. Hopefully have your mind around the book. I think there's a connection that we can see between Exodus and Ephesians. And here's my goal. My goal right now in going to the New Testament is to show that the Old Testament God is the same exact God as the New Testament God. In other words, the Old Testament God is not a God of wrath only but a God of grace also. And in the same way, the New Testament God is not a God of grace only, but a God of wrath also. It's the same God. Last week, we went over a ton of passages where we see the transcendent holy nature of God, his wrathful nature in the New Testament. I want you to see God's grace in the Old Testament. So look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We've talked about this when we in Ephesians. That word, therefore, is extremely, extremely important. In Paul's epistles, often the word, therefore, that word, often separates the doctrinal passage, or the portion of the the epistle from the practical living portion. In fact, in the book of Romans, he does the same thing. Right? 1 through 11 is all doctrine. You get to chapter 12 and the very first saying he says, therefore, and then live this way from 12 on. In fact, you can split Ephesians. You see see it most clearly in Ephesians. You can split it right in half. For chapters 1 through 3 is just doctrine, theology, it's this deep theology, deep doctrine of what has happened to us as Christians. And chapters four through six is ethical, practical section. How you should live in light of the theology and doctrine talked about in chapters one through three. And right in the middle of the epistle is therefore. In fact, we're in Ephesians. I said this a number of times. There's 40 imperatives, 40 commands. 40 commands Paul gives the church at Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. 39 of the 40 is found in chapters 4 through 6, the second half of the book, the epistle. Everything after the therefore. 39 commands. Before the therefore, chapters 1 through 3, it's all indicatives. It's all statements of fact. It's all Propositional truths Telling us information about what has happened In fact there's only one command And that command is remember all this doctrine <laughs> And this is again very common in Paul's writing Chapter 1 2, 3 gives us The theology what has happened Chapters 4 through 6 gives us the commands How we should live And it's separated by one word Therefore Again look at what Paul says In Ephesians 4 verse 1 I therefore That therefore Isn't the first Greek word in that sentence But the idea Is the first idea It, it could be therefore I You can get a prisoner of, For the Lord Therefore I urge you To walk in a manner worthy of the calling To which you have been called Walk in other words Worthy of the calling with which you have been called Now that word worthy is like this idea of scales on one side, you have something very weighty. On the other side, you should have something worthy of that weight. Walk worthy, worthy of the calling which you have been called. Paul is saying as Christians, we should live our lives equal to the great blessing given to us by God. Well, what blessings? The blessings described in chapters 1 through 3. Well, what are those blessings? That God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, chapter 1, verse 3. That God chose us before the foundation of the world, verse 4. That God predestined us for adoption, verse 5. In other words, before we could do anything, nothing we could do to earn God's love and grace. That God redeemed us by his blood, verse 7. That God forgave us our trespasses. That God lavished upon us his grace, verse 8. That God gave us wisdom and insight, verse 9. That God gave us an inheritance, verse 11. And sealed us with the Holy Spirit, verse 13. Not only that, chapter 2, we were dead, verse 1. He made us alive, verse 2. He raised us up verse 5 he seated us with christ in the heavenly places verse 6 he gave us faith as a gift verse 7 not only that he brought us near which we're learning in exodus is a big deal verse 13 he gave us peace verse 14 he broke down the dividing walls of hostility reconciling us to himself verse 16 he gave us access to the Father by the Spirit, verse 19. He gave us citizenship to the kingdom, made us members of the household of God. He made us a holy temple, verse 21. He made us the dwelling place of God. And this is plural, by the way. We're so individualistic that we say, oh, our bodies is the temple of God plural we don't see the plural in English when we come together we are the temple of God the church verse 22 in chapters 1 through 3 God is acting and he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives Ephesians 1 through 3 it is just so clear We did absolutely nothing to earn our salvation. Nothing. It's all by grace. It's all by God's actions. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Because of God's grace, this weighty grace on one side, we should obey God's commands live a life worthy of the calling with which we've been called this is what makes Christianity different than any other religion because we're saved by grace alone not by works there's nothing we can do to earn salvation it's earned for us it's God's grace he gives in Christianity grace comes before works christianity grace comes before commands grace comes before the law in christianity salvation comes before righteous living right salvation comes before human action in ephesians one through three grace salvation god's works comes before chapters four through six righteous living works the law They go hand in hand. They go together. But they go together by one word. Therefore. Because of God's grace, therefore, live this way. Well, think of the book of Exodus. Exodus 1 through 19, we're right in the middle. Exodus 1 through 19, it's like it's all indicatives. It's all all what God has done for Israel up to this point. Right? It's all God's grace. God has saved Israel. He's redeemed Israel from slavery. Israel has done absolutely nothing. In fact, they're pretty pathetic. I think the only action that I've seen so far is grumbling. They've done nothing to earn God's grace. Then we get to chapter 20, and God says, because of this great salvation... Right that's verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Because of this great salvation live this way. Chapter 20 gives 10 commandments. Chapters 20 through 40 the second half of Exodus just like Ephesians is law. It's the way that Israel is to live in light of the great salvation that's been given. Listen, even in the Old Testament, grace came before law. Grace came before law. It's not like the Old Testament, you did all these things to earn God's favor. In the New Testament, it's all just God's grace. It's grace in both testaments. Grace came before the law. The reason why the Pharisees were the Pharisees is because they mixed those two things up. And they said, Law comes first, and that's how we gain salvation. And Jesus came and said, That's wrong. (laughs) It's wrong in the New Testament, it was wrong in the Old Testament. In fact, that's why you have Hebrews chapter eleven. You have Hebrews chapter eleven talking about all these great Old Testament figures that were saved. By grace through faith, not by works. The author is saying it was grace in the Old Testament, just like it's grace in the New Testament. Exodus 1 through 19 is God's grace. He saves Israel from slavery, redeems Israel. Exodus 20 through 40 is God's law, God's commands. How Israel should live in light of this grace. How Israel should live worthy of the calling with which they've been called again it's just like the new testament it's god's grace that was to motivate god's people to obey the law listen to what j.a mortier writes about this The, the grace that saves precedes the law that demands both exodus and ephesians both old and new testament this is true The people were given the law, not in order that they might become the redeemed. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. The law of God is the way of life he sets before those whom he has saved. And they engage in the way of life as a response of love and gratitude to God, their redeemer. At least they were supposed to grace and law belong together for grace leads to law saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience listen even in the Old Testament God is a God who saves by grace alone the law came after grace, after salvation so those are the three points of the sermon the three ways we see God's imminence In Exodus 19 and 20 Yahweh is a God who descended Yahweh is a God who spoke And Yahweh Is a God who saves For how transcendent God is Just so clear in chapter 19 God is still our God In fact God is our Father Only when we see that Through the transcendent nature Does that become amazing Let me end with just one application point, since it's Mother's Day. Just an application for parenting. Turn to Deuteronomy 6, starting verse 20. Deuteronomy 6, starting verse 20. And I kind of want to reaffirm what God is saying here in Exodus. Deuteronomy 6, verse 20 says this, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statues and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, when your child comes and he's going to it someday, and this is true for us, even in the New Testament, when he comes and asks you about the law, we're no longer under all the laws of the Old Testament, but we're under the law of Christ in the New Testament, and there's plenty of laws that we are called to follow as obedient Christians. When your son comes, right, to an Israelite, when your son comes and says, what's with the law, all these rules and statues and commandments, why do you live this way, Mom, Dad? Why should I live this way? Well, look at verse 21. Then you shall say to your son We must obey God's law Or God will smite us It's not what it says I'm sorry We must obey God's law Because he is terrifying Let me tell you about Mount Sinai Fire Flames Lightning Thunder The whole mountain was on fire son you better obey or else this is the old testament law look what it says verse 21 then you shall say to your son we were pharaoh's slaves in egypt the lord brought us out of egypt with a mighty hand and the lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against egypt and against pharaoh and all his households before our eyes and brought us, And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. You know what that is? God's grace. When your son comes and asks you about the law, why we should obey, remind him who I am. I'm gracious. I saved you. For us, we were were slaves to sin before God saved us from a a sinful life. When your son or daughter comes to you and asks, Why should I live this way? Remind them of where you came from and, and the pain and suffering sin brings. And the grace that God gave by giving you life, spiritual life. Taking your sins and putting it on the cross and sacrificing his own son for you. Only after grace that we get to verse 24. And look what it says. The Lord commanded us to do all these statues, to fear the Lord our God. And then listen to this. For our good always. In other words, son, you can trust this glorious, transcendent, even fearful God. Because he's good. He wants good for us. He might preserve us alive as we are this day. It's God's goodness and grace that should be the motivation behind obedience. Therefore, teach your children that we obey because of grace. We do not earn our salvation by doing good works, by obeying the law. The Pharisees forgot this passage in Deuteronomy 6. We should obey because we love the God who saves. We love and trust this God who is gracious to us. We love the God who loved us first. Listen, teach your children to obey out of faith. Faith in a God who is trustworthy, gracious, good, and loving. Point your children always to the grace of God. Point your children always to the gospel. reveals God's character more than anything else. Let's pray. God, I'm reminded as we go through these passages of just how complete your character truly is. That if we focus on just one aspect of your character to the neglect of something else we make a false god a god that's not been revealed to us in scripture a god that you haven't revealed the, your own personal nature your thoughts to us lord we are responsible to, to to do our best to handle your word to understand who you are the best we can i know there's things beyond us and deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says the secret things belong to the lord things revealed belong to us and our children forever help us be in awe lord of your transcendent nature that i pray as we see your transcendent nature lord it helps us cherish your grace and love and mercy on us in your son's name amen